Hello and welcome. I'm David Beard, contributing editor for Daily Coast Elections. And I'm David Neer, political director of Daily Coast. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the many elections that take place below the presidency, from Senate to City Council. You can subscribe to The Down Ballot wherever you listen to podcasts, and please leave us a five-star rating and review. We had another exciting primary night this week, so what are we going to be covering on today's show? We had a special election in Minnesota where Republicans dramatically underperformed the top of the ticket. We also saw the final conclusion to last week's primaries in Washington state where yet another pro-impeachment Republican has lost. We have some primaries in Minnesota and Wisconsin and Vermont that we want to catch up on. And then we are going to be talking with political consultant Terrence Green, who, among other things, was responsible for running the Biden-Harris campaign's paid media outreach to black voters in 2020. Plenty to talk about on this week's show, so let's get rolling. We had a number of primary elections this past Tuesday, but most importantly, we actually had a special election in Minnesota for the first district. So what happened there, Nair? So this was a special election for the vacancy in Minnesota's first congressional district that was held by Republican Jim Hagedorn, who died earlier this year. And Republican Brad Finstad defeated Democrat Jeff Edinger by a 51-47 margin. And you might ask, why do we think it's so important to talk about a race where a Republican held a Republican seat? And the answer is that this is rather conservative turf in southern Minnesota. It includes the city of Rochester and also a lot of rural areas as well. Donald Trump won this district by a 54 to 44 margin in 2020. So he won it by 10 points. Finstad only carried it by four points, which means he ran six points behind Donald Trump. And simply put, that kind of underperformance is not the sort of thing that you would expect to see if the GOP supposedly is facing a favorable political environment for them, if they are on the verge of benefiting from typical midterm patterns, which invariably almost always harm the party that is in control of the White House, that really isn't what should have happened. Finstad should have won by at least Donald Trump's margin, if not by a bigger margin. Now, this is a district that has been home to very close house races for the last three election cycles. So even though this district has moved sharply away from Democrats at the presidential level, it still often is likelier to vote for Democrats further down ticket. However, this is not the only recent data point we have that is confounding our expectations of what the 2022 election will look like. At the end of June, just four days after the Supreme Court's Dobbs ruling, Nebraska held a special election in the similarly conservative first district, and the results were almost exactly the same. The Republican there ran six points behind Donald Trump. And then, of course, last week, we saw the incredible 18-point victory in Kansas to defeat an amendment that would have stripped the right to an abortion from the state constitution. So now we have three data points 
points, suggesting that maybe there really has been quite a shift in the political environment since the Supreme Court's ruling in the Dobbs case overturning the right to an abortion. I don't want to draw too many conclusions as a result of such a small sample size, but we are about to have a whole bunch more data come in. In fact, there are three more special elections coming up in just the next two weeks. Next week, we have Alaska's at-large special election. And two weeks from now, we have two special elections in New York in the 19th district and the 23rd district. The 19th district is really going to be one to watch. Here, this is a seat that the Democrats hold. Uh, it's quite a divided swing seat. But the Democrat who's running in this race, Pat Ryan, has really made abortion a central issue in this race. He's run ads on it. He's really called it a referendum on abortion rights. And I think we're going to get a really good window into just how the Dobbs decision is affecting the electorate in a couple of weeks. I don't want to revise my predictions for November yet. I am still relatively bearish on Democrats' chances for holding the House, but it's going to be really important to pay attention to what happens over the next two weeks. And if the results continue to indicate that abortion is a massive motivating issue for Democratic voters, then Democratic candidates have to lead and they have to lean into this one because it could really change the trajectory of the term elections. And special elections are important data points because there have been so many issues with polling over the past years, particularly favoring Democrats and leading to these bad surprises in 2016 and 2020 and in Florida year after year after year. And so special elections are like polls, except they're real live experiments basically in these individual districts of exactly how you know the elections will happen in November. And so they are better data points. Because they're so rare, you then struggle with the fact that like, oh, is there a weird situation here or an unusual candidate there? But taken as a whole, and the more data points, as you said, we can get here, the more representative it is of what we might expect to happen in November. The other point I wanted to make was that last year in Virginia is another example of an actual election we can look to. And that election didn't go very well for Democrats and sort of was more along the lines of what you'd expect for a good Republican year. But that potentially has changed with these special elections. And again, we'll get the more data points. We'll see if that continues to happen. And the one that I think I would look at most closely is New York 19, as you mentioned. If Democrats have any potential shot to hang on to the House in November, given these special election results, they should be able to win and hold this seat. And so if that happens, that would really make me think twice about what sort of chances do Democrats have in November in the House? Another really important result that we wanted to highlight is actually from last week's primary races in Washington, where votes continued to come in and resulted in a really significant change in one of the congressional races. In Washington's third district, as we mentioned last week, Representative Jamie Herrera Butler was in a tough race. She was one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump last year. She was facing off both against a Democrat a Republican endorsed by Trump and a number of other candidates who were also in the ballot. The Democrat Marie Perez leads the vote with 31% and Herrera Butler led the Trumpist candidate Joe Kent by a small but you know noticeable margin right after election night. But the votes that were counted later ended up being much more favorable to Kent than Herrera Butler and he ended up edging her out 
22.8% to 22.3% for the second general election spot. Of course, Washington State has a top two primary, so Perez and Kent will be the two candidates advancing to November. That means that only likely two of the Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump will advance to the general election. Dan Newhouse in Washington's fourth district, he did survive, as we talked about last week, and David Valadeo in California. Liz Cheney still has her primary coming up, so she, but she's a big, big underdog in that race. So it's most likely that only Newhouse and Valadeo will make it to the general election. The other notable thing about this race is that Herrera Butler lost despite significant Democratic support. Democrats got 42 percent in the 2020 congressional primary, but only got 34 percent of the vote in this year's congressional primary. Republicans got 64% of the vote, which is much higher than they would have normally gotten. And that leads to the fact that a number of Democrats crossed over and voted for Herrera Butler in the hopes that she would advance to the general instead of the, the Trumpist candidate. So the fact that she narrowly lost without those Democrats, she would have lost to Kent by a much, much larger margin. And I also point that potentially this race could be on the fringes of competitiveness. Obviously, Perez should pick up a lot of those Democrats who voted for Herrera Butler. Is that enough to put it on the board? Still to be seen, but certainly at least worth keeping an eye on. It also just goes to show that for all the hand-wringing about Democratic meddling in GOP primaries, this is truly what Republicans want. Like you said, without Democratic help, Herrera Butler would have gotten completely destroyed. So how is it that Democrats can or even should be responsible for the outcome of GOP primaries? These trends, these patterns are just far, far too strong, even when you have tens of thousands of, of Democrats switching sides. Tuesday night, of course, we also saw a bunch of primaries. The most surprising result almost certainly happened in Minnesota's 5th district. This is a dark blue seat based in Minneapolis. And here, Congresswoman Ilan Omar fended off former Minneapolis City Council member Don Samuels by just a 50 to 48 margin. Omar's win was the weakest primary showing by a Democratic incumbent in the House since the Democratic Party merged with the Farmer Labor Party in 1944 to create the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, best known as the DFL in Minnesota. Omar reportedly did not run any television ads at all in this race, apparently due to a belief that her base constituted younger voters who would not be receptive to such a message. It seems like that was a huge mistake, and she got very, very lucky to win renomination. Samuels himself was a flawed candidate who wasn't necessarily the right fit for this sort of district, but winning just 50% in a party primary, especially when you you have the official DFL endorsement is a terribly weak showing, and it suggests that a stronger candidate could unseat Omar in a future election cycle, though I would certainly expect her to campaign differently in a future year, given how close a call this was. And I think you can compare it to the other squad members who have faced primaries and dispatched them very easily. The fact that Omar struggled so much in this race really points to a poorly run campaign. And hopefully, you know, she learns from that, runs a stronger campaign in the future if she's facing a primary challenger so that this sort of near miss, you know, doesn't come out of nowhere like that. Another competitive race on Tuesday night was in the Wisconsin governor's race for the Republicans, where self-funding businessman Tim Michaels 
defeated former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish, 47% to 42%. Michaels will be taking on incumbent Democratic Governor Tony Evers. Michaels had Trump's endorsement, which of course goes a long way in these Republican primaries. He was also on the ballot previously way back in 2004 when he lost the Senate race to Democrat Russ Feingold, 55% to 44%. Michaels jumped into this race very late in April, but of course he had a ton of money to spend to reintroduce himself to voters after not being on the ballot for almost two decades. And he decisively outspent Clayfish after investing $12 million of his own money into his comeback. Clayfish, of course, was Scott Walker's running mate in each of his campaigns and had his backing for the top job and, and seemed to be the clear front runner. But the amount of money that was spent and, of course, Donald Trump's endorsement of Michael's went a long way into turning the race around and ended up causing Clayfish's loss. This, of course, is going to be one of the very, very top gubernatorial races in November. Evers only defeated Scott Walker by a very small margin in 2018. It really was one of the biggest Democratic upsets of the night in that big wave year. Democrats are also desperately trying to hold on to their current set of seats in the legislature. They want to avoid giving Republicans a supermajority. That's super important because even if Evers wins a second term, if Republicans can win two-thirds majorities in both chambers of the legislature, they will be able to override any of his vetoes. And given Wisconsin's undoubted importance to the 2024 presidential election, just as it's been so important in all of these past presidential elections in our lifetimes, for Democrats to hang on to power in the Badger State is incredibly important. And lastly, we wanted to highlight Vermont, who will be likely sending a woman to Congress for the first time and will be the 50th and final state to do so. State Senate President Pro Tem Becca Ballant beat Lieutenant Governor Molly Gray 61% to 37% in the primary to replace Peter Welch, who is, of course, running for Senate to replace Pat Leahy. So the winner ballot will likely become Vermont's only House member. She had endorsements from Bernie Sanders, as well as the LGBTQ Victory Fund. She would also be the Green Mountain State's first gay representative. Well, that does it for our weekly hits. Coming up, we are going to be talking with political consultant Terrence Green, who, among many other things, was responsible for the Biden-Harris campaign's media outreach to black voters in the 2020 election. He also worked on the famous Georgia Senate runoff for Raphael Warnock following the 2020 elections. We have a lot to talk about with him, so please stay with us after the break. Joining us today is Terrence Green, who is managing partner at the political consulting group 4C Partners. Among many campaigns, he notably led the largest ever paid media operation to turn out the black vote by a presidential campaign in history on behalf of the Biden and Harris ticket in 2020. Terrence, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. So we always like to start with hearing a little bit about our guest's backstory. So we would love to have you tell us about how you got involved in politics and how you became a leading Democratic political consultant. My journey here was 
probably similar to some other folks, we're, a lot of people were just looking to, for a job that paid consistently. Sometime in late 1999 or, or in 2000, I was on the road as a trainer for bartenders at TGI Fridays. I gave up an illustrious career serving food to the masses to join politics where I now serve messages to the masses. But I was on the road. I received <laughs> a call from a, a gentleman uh, whose name is Adam Ferrari at a firm called GMMB. And they wanted someone to just help them out for a three-month period in what was the fall of 2000, in the heat of uh, the Bush v. Gore. Uh, I didn't know much about politics or about political media. I didn't know this existed at all. But I knew that there was a job that was going to pay me, um, I don't know, I think 100 bucks a day. And I jumped at it because I wouldn't have to come home smelling like French fries. That three-month gig turned into 13 years and a lot of amazing things that happened along the way. So uh, shout out to Fridays. And, uh, you know, I'm glad not to be there. though. <laughs> So you mentioned that that was a 13-year gig, but if we add that to 1999, that puts us in the early 2000s, uh, early 2010s, rather. Uh, so uh, what happened next? Well, after that, you, you know, look, my time at GMB was really amazing. I was able to uh, work on numerous presidential campaigns. Uh, I was able to use my degree. I went to American University, and I studied film and politics. And that's what I do today, and that's what I've done for the last 20-plus years, which is pretty amazing. I have a lot of friends who went to school who do something way different than what they what they studied, and that's that's great. College is a time to learn about yourself and what you might want to do. But I, I was able to find and start training for what I was doing without knowing I was getting ready for that moment. So at my time at GMB, I was able to be a part of John Kerry's presidential campaign in 2004, uh, Barack Obama's campaign in 2008, and the re-election in 2012. And to have a real front seat in all of these things, you know, I was able to go to the White House and film the president. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> able to go on the road with the president of the United States and, and, and film him uh, in making history. Able to meet then-candidate Barack Obama in a hot sweaty office in downtown D.C. to get him to say his radio disclaimer is on Barack Obama and I approve this message way before the, uh, you know, the the, uh, the caucuses in Iowa and, and when people were still trying to figure out who was going to win at that point, you probably would have, uh, you know, Hillary was the, the odds on favorite. So being a part of those pieces of history was a pretty amazing thing for, you know, a kid from Long Island, New York, who, um, you know, just kind of grew up trying to figure out his own path in the world and finding it later on uh, doing these amazing uh, things that I'm still sometimes you, you can't quite digest it. But, you know, um, being there for the moment Barack Obama was nominated for the Democratic ticket in Denver, something I'll never forget as a, as a person, uh, as an individual or professional, just seeing that that history happen the looks in people's eyes, the energy, and in, in, in the state of things that we're in right now, it's, it's kind of hard to believe that that actually happened not too long ago. <laughs> but the, my, my time at GMB and, and the people there who are, you know, really groundbreakers and trailblazers in this field of political advertising uh, taught me everything that I know about what I do. 
in 2012 after the the Obama campaign ended, I started thinking about what my future looked like and wanted to forge my own path as my own person. And that's when I decided to leave the firm in 2013 and start my own company uh, called Shuxton Creative. And that led to opportunities down the line, which put me together with the 4C team. So now, as a few consultants in this world have, you know, we have multiple brands. Chuckson Creative is around. 4C is something I'm also an owner and partner of. And these are vehicles of our own making that allow us to do the same work, but to do it our own way and to write the next chapter of how this type of work happens and who does it. And it's exciting to be a part of that. One thing we love to do here on the down ballot is get into the nitty gritty of campaign operations and sort of pull back the curtain because everyone listening to this program has, of course, seen political ads on TV or heard them on radio. But how does one actually get made? Can you walk us through the steps from beginning to end, from conception to actually getting the ad placed on the air? What is that whole process? What needs to happen before viewers at home can actually see an ad? That, that's a great question. And sometimes for us, we do this on autopilot. We do it so much that sometimes you, you don't think about the process per se. You just are doing it. But I'll say the, the genesis of ads, you know, look, no candidate runs a campaign so they can run political ads. Political ads are a means to an end. <laughs> to get people to know who you are and to help you know win an election. It's one of the tools that you use. Same as direct mail, uh, online video, you know, yard signs. The thing with political ads is that a lot of people see them and people love video and people want to see and hear from candidates. So this is a very niche and unique platform to do that with. Making an ad depends on your priorities. It depends on, do we need to get people to know the candidate? Do we need to speak about an issue uh, specifically? Do we need to attack somebody? So we have to make that determination um, before we start. But assuming that we've already made that determination and we have our, our direction and marching orders, it might involve getting a camera on a candidate. So I'll say, hey, you know what? I've got to have John Smith film a 30-second ad about this issue abortion rights, gun control, you name it. And that may take a couple of days or we may have a few weeks to you know organize that type of a filming and we'll get that captured. That will be you know a, a high-end camera the type that you might use for a movie that will involve lights, that will involve an audio team and sometimes a makeup artist. But in, in a location which may be a candidate's house or something that, that we, we that we source a different way. So those things need to happen. The candidates need to look and sound right. That is priority number one. The next piece will be post-production. We take these ads to video editors and skilled folks, uh, sometimes at larger um, you know, creative shops where they've got several editors. Sometimes there are individual editors that we will use. And they're using the latest materials, the same stuff that people put together the TV shows with and, and, and the online videos and, and everything that you see. They're using the same materials and the same tools to put together these political ads, our, our 30 seconds of, of joy that we deliver into everyone's <laughs> TVs and timelines. From there, 
then we, we move to getting the ad distributed. The ad will go out very quickly, usually within a few minutes if it's uh, for digital, or it could be within, you know, 18 hours or so if it's going to be for television. And the, the workflow for that has changed immensely over the years. It used to be a lot more analog, but now it's almost instantaneous. And we're able to get our ads on broadcast, television, cable, you name it, and get the message out. Yeah, for independent expenditure ads, the process is a little different. There's a higher legal threshold you've got to meet. So there usually are a lot of lawyers involved as you're writing the script for it. Uh, there are certain things you can say uh, or not say. You've got to be able to substantiate whatever the claims are, usually with third-party sources like news clips, um, research documents, the statements of those candidates themselves, whatever words they use out of their own mouths are you know, can be used against them in campaign ads or, or the court of law. So those are the types of things that, 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 we, that we will use to substantiate those types of ads. And we also have to be credible. If you're out there swinging wildly and, and saying crazy things about folks and you are an independent expenditure, you could do more harm to the cause than good. The, the first rule of independent expenditures is do no harm. So you don't want to undercut the candidate that you're supporting if it's, you know, say that a Democrat running for a House seat or a Senate seat by making a, a third party ad that gets everyone in trouble because you you said something that wasn't true or or it was too inflammatory. So th there's certainly a code that must be followed when it comes to independent expenditures. And you want to be as helpful as possible with the cause overall. We make a ton of those types of ads. As we've seen in the recent years, those types of ads are you know, in some ways, the majority of the ads that are out there. And and, and there's a reason why the, the money the money allows people to do more of these types of expenditures. So there's two different tracks of the types of ads that you can do. Depends if you're working on, on a candidate directly or independent expenditure. And there's two different approaches that we typically take to get those done. I find that difference so interesting between candidate ads and third party ads and if you're wondering why the standards are so different, it's because TV and radio stations are obligated by law to run any ads from candidates that they receive. And so these stations said in response, well, if we're obligated to run these ads, then we shouldn't be able to be held liable for any defamatory content as a publisher of these ads. And the courts have agreed. Whereas stations are not obligated to run ads from third party groups like super PACs, so they can be held liable for any defamatory content. And therefore, stations are more likely to take ads down from third party groups, something they'll never really do. In fact, they really can't do with candidate ads. So it's a huge gulf. And every so often you will see a third party group ad get taken down for making false statements. And like you said, um, it totally violates the do no harm principle, because then you have a whole news cycle about some false ad from some third party group and no candidate ever wants to have to deal with that. Yeah, a candidate ad, you can lie in your candidate ads <laughs> because it's the First Amendment and it's covered by free speech and candidates have, you know, we've seen many candidates from president on down say whatever they want in their campaign ads and sometimes it's not true. And not to say that Democrats won't do it either because, you know, we, we can bend the truth with the candidate ads. The 
uh, on the independent expenditure ads, the super PAC ads, there's lawyers involved on both sides and people are looking with a fine tooth comb for you to mess up and they want to get that ad taken down. And when an ad gets taken down, it becomes a news story. It becomes a news story and it hurts. You know, the collateral damage is that it would hurt also the candidate that you're trying to support. So uh, we don't want to be a part of that. Someone's going to give you the stink eye and, and badmouth you later. So you don't, you don't want to be a part of the, t- those types of stories if you can avoid it. As we mentioned at the beginning, you were working on the, the Biden campaign. You led their paid media effort targeting African-American voters um, in that election. So what were the biggest challenges that you faced during that election in terms of you know both persuading African-American voters and, and focusing on turning them out? Yeah, I mean, look, the Biden team called up to run a program that was evolving in real time to get black voters engaged. You know, I will give them so much credit for realizing that they had to have a separate program and also fund it. There's, there's two different things. Having a program is one thing because every every presidential campaign has a program to get black voters. But to, to really fund it the way that they did was something that I was really happy about and proud to be a part of. And alluding to my prior experience, I've been around several presidential campaigns, which even for the work that we do, not not everyone has been a part of those types of campaigns. They're, they're large, they're unwieldy, they are uh, a whole different animal from Senate campaigns and from House campaigns. There's different things that happen in, in these races at scale that are, are tough to deal with. But if you've been around it, you can at least not get overwhelmed with the prospect of running, you know, multiple ad tracks in multiple states. So the challenges with running the, the ad campaign in 2020 were numerous. We, had, we were in the middle of a pandemic. We had a contentious primary where we had Biden come out you know, of a crowded field, but didn't have the internal operation built up as you know maybe some other candidates would have in the past as they were coming out of a primary win. We were also you know, dealing with uh, a country in a state of great unrest uh, with the killing of George Floyd. We, we saw riots and, and, and civil disobedience and, 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 and demonstrations in a way we hadn't seen in a really long time in this country. So in the midst of all that, and we had a president who didn't seem to care much about doing much to solve the problems that we were facing. There were, there were a lot of things that, that we had to overcome in terms of putting a program together and then talking to black voters and meeting them where they were. We had to meet that moment in time and it was an unprecedented moment. There was a lot of uncertainty but there was a great desire to get President Trump out of the office. He's still you know, the best turnout tool that you could ever ask for. Black voters, generally speaking, are done with the drama. They're done with the disrespect and the chaos that defined the Trump years. We wanted something new. But we had to also realize that people weren't going to go vote just because they love Joe Biden. You know, Voting for, for black folks has a, a different a different approach to it historically. We wanted to choose someone who was going to be a, who is the best choice for us, who will be someone who can you know help move us forward or, you know, which candidate would hurt us the least. That's also the sort of the inverse question that had to be answered in some ways as you're trying to frame the arguments. 
the messaging that we were, you know, going at this with was, you know, understanding that the choice for black voters wasn't going to be Biden versus Trump. We're already done with Trump. It was Biden versus sitting this one out. Biden versus staying home. We had to make sure that people didn't see staying home or sitting out as a viable option for them. What's happening right now in the country, what was happening in 2020 was way too important for people to sit it out. So the very first ads and messaging that we had, even before we had all of the research and polling, was really about empowering black voters and letting them know that they were going to be the ones that decided this election and giving them that power, reminding them of the power that has been used in the past to make change in this country and calling on voters to do that once again. And then right after the the 2020 election happened, obviously we found ourselves in the situation of having these double barrel Georgia runoffs with potentially control of the Senate. And we have seen over the past year and a half how incredibly consequential those races ended up being with all of the legislation. Most recently, of course, the Inflation Reduction Act, as it's now called, that, that just passed the Senate. You moved you know, very quickly to do work in these races. You did paid media on behalf of Raphael Warnock, but through, you know, Senate majority PAC. So through that IE campaign um, that we mentioned previously. And this was for, you know, general audiences, not just African-American voters. What was the, the strategic plan in that race? How did it come about? What was the turnaround time like when we only had, you know, 60 days to go from, from zero to 60 here? That was a very trying time in life. <laughs> uh, was I was very personally exhausted from the, the prior 150 days of, of running the, the Biden effort for black voters. And the very next day had to find some more energy and, and, you know, some more gas in the tank to be a part of this next race. Because Biden's win wouldn't mean as much if we couldn't flip those two seats in Georgia. So... We were, we were obviously up for the task and, and got into it. Um, one thing that we like to say over here and one thing that makes us stand out from some of the other folks who do this work is that on one day, this firm, this team is called on to get black voters for Biden. And the very next day, we're getting white voters for Warnock. That involves a lot of cultural competency, <laughs> being nimble, and also being able to understand whatever assignment that is given to you. The key for the Georgia runoff, working with Senate Majority PAC, was to understand the playing field. There was a lot of spending already going on, a lot of money being spent already in the state of Georgia, and with a lot more to come. We weren't planning on being the biggest fish in the pond when it came to advertising in the Atlanta media market and in some of the other you know, major markets. But we wanted to, to understand which audience that we could impact on the margins. It was going to be a close race no matter what. We understood that from the jump. So what we saw in the research, and this program relied heavily on a lot of research and ad testing, that we wanted to make sure that the current senator, Kelly Leffler, could be disqualified because of her actions as senator with a particular set of white voters who are not in the Atlanta media market. So we're working in all the other corners of the state from your Savannahs, your Macon's, 
those little tiny markets on the Tennessee border and the Florida border. That's where we were playing. We wanted, we wanted to get that half a percent, that 1%, which might end up making the difference. Let the other folks do the work with turning out folks in Atlanta Metro and having the battle there. So the ads that we ran, we ran maybe a half a dozen, but we made, I would say, at least 15 or 20 that didn't see the light of day were tested with this particular set of voters. They were white voters. They were seemingly had a profile that they could be, I wouldn't say they were going to vote for Warnock, but they they could be turned away from Leffler. If these folks didn't turn out, that would be a win for us. (laughs) If they turned out to vote for Warnock, even better. But we wanted to make sure they didn't vote for Kelly Leffler. Her stock scandal was the number one thing that popped the people's heads that, that happened earlier earlier on that year with her insider trading scandal was top of mind for a lot of voters. So we use that against her. And we also tried to see, could we pivot to also pin the tail on the donkey with some other issues that were going on economically with the pandemic, you name it. So we did a lot of different variations to see which ones really stuck with voters. Most of our arguments centered around how small businesses were suffering while Kelly Leffler was making a profit. In the end, everything that happened in that race mattered. Every group that spent money and, and was, was active because we won by the hair of our chins and we were able to make a big difference and be a part of that. So around January 5th or so, we were able to, to take a nap finally from the 2020 elections. Unfortunately, the very next day, the, the world kind of went to hell. That was such a jarring time to have this extraordinary success on Jan 5 uh, and to feel on top of the world. And then all of a sudden, the very next day, we're still talking about that day. (laughs) We had no time to celebrate. That was one thing with the 2020. There was no time to celebrate anything. Biden didn't really win on election night. So there was no popping of champagne until a week later. But even that was muted we flipped the Senate, two seats in Georgia, you know, history made, and the very next day, chaos at the Capitol. So, you know, in some ways, uh, you know, we, we haven't had time to really celebrate what we did here because the, the work was extraordinary but with so many people. We just had one little piece of this, uh, the story, but I'm still waiting for that celebration, maybe one day. Well, I sort of feel as Beard alluded, every time a bill passes the Senate by a 50-50 margin with Harris breaking ties, I kind of feel like that's a moment to uh, pop the bubbly. Look, that feels good every time they call her into the chamber to break the tie, because that doesn't happen without Warnock and Ossoff being in the Senate. And, and those were two wins that people didn't think were possible. But when you think about the you know, the prior cycles and the work that was done in Georgia to mobilize, especially the black vote, even what Biden was able to do to enhance that, you know, and we had, you know, some part of that story too, in terms of keeping folks engaged to keep voting and to make change. And we saw that we won Georgia. Who would have thought Democrats haven't won Georgia since the 90s? And we were able to do that three times in uh, 60 days. Who, you know, I wouldn't have put a bet in Vegas on that, likely, but <laughs> but, but but we're, we're not here, you know, to, to play the odds in that way. We still have to work just as hard and try to achieve that result that we're, we're hired to do. 
Turning to 2022 and the midterms, of course, Joe Biden's approval is down across the board and black voters are no exception. What is the general feeling, the sense you're getting from African-American voters in terms of their feelings about Joe Biden and about voting in the midterms? That's a great question. This this is a, a real time thing that we are trying to figure out right now in a lot of different places. So, you know, we're, we're consulting on a bunch of different races in, in, in different corners of the country, uh, from house races to, to statewide. And there have been a lot of focus groups that have already happened and, and, and other research tools. So what, what I can share from that is sort of an amalgamation of, of, of those sentiments. Some of that research has involved focus groups with African-Americans. So we can hear you know, from people's own mouths, what's going on? How do you feel about things? Generally speaking, black folks are still with Joe Biden. They're not excited about Joe Biden necessarily, but they're generally with him. They're not with him at, at, with the intensity level that you'd need to really be successful in a, in a midterm. So that's something that we have to keep a really close eye on. There's, there's certainly a lot of discontent that not enough has been done. As we were explaining earlier, the Herculean effort that it took in 2020 to get folks to the polls in the midst of a pandemic and, and all this you know, uncertainty and unrest I think people wanted more of a return on that investment and they don't, they're not feeling that prices of things are too high. We wanted some change with policing to get more justice and also, you know, safer communities, more action, tangible action on guns, better jobs, better wages, things like that. And those are things that people aren't really seeing or feeling in a tangible way. So there's certainly, there's certainly some hesitancy about, voting and if I come out, what's going to change? You, you said last time we were going to get somewhere and we we're not there yet. We're also realizing, though, that the Supreme Court has really put a spotlight on our rights and our rights are under attack. And we're seeing how we can position ourselves when it comes to abortion rights, when it comes to some of the other rights that are, you know, are seemingly also in the crosshairs of this conservative court and putting Democrats on the, the right side of protecting those rights, who you can marry, what you can do with your body, your right to vote, all these things, having a chance to codify that. We've already you know, moved to put some of those votes there. And I think that it would be important for Democrats to tell people what they've done when it comes to rights, when it comes to economic issues, and also what they want to protect Fear is always a healthy additive to this argument, too. If we tell people what the other guy is going to do is really bad, that will be very helpful as well. So when we're talking about getting black folks out, I think we have to also understand that we just can't take black votes for granted. Candidates have to pursue those votes, invest in black votes. Those are still Democratic votes to lose for now, but they must be earned. When you're thinking about your media plans, when you're thinking about your community investments, you've got to put the time in to make sure that African-American voters are engaged early and often. And they will come out to support. But if you, if you wait till too late, then those are voters that you know may choose to sit home and not come out. 
So Democrats have nominated or will soon nominate four African-American Senate candidates in some of the most competitive Senate races this year, including, of course, Raphael Warnock, as we've mentioned, Sherry Beasley in North Carolina, Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin, and Val Demings in Florida. How does having an African-American nominee in these races in these states um, affect those races, both among you know the African-American voters and, and their turnout and their enthusiasm for that and the general electorate? I'm personally excited about all four of these candidates to reelect Senator Warnock would be you know, obviously a big deal in Georgia, but you know, Barnes, Beasley and Demings are also extremely strong and exciting candidates. And I think that the black candidates in these statewide races have a unique opportunity to, to shed sort of the, the labeling of typical liberal that happens, I think with some other types of candidates they can carve their own path about what type of senator that they would be. I'll take one case in point of a, a candidate who's done that successfully. Uh, one of our clients is Antonio Delgado. He's now the lieutenant governor of New York, but he got his start in 2018 running in a House district in upstate New York, which is 90% white. Nobody thought he can win. A lot of people said that he should not even run. I will leave those names out of this podcast, but they're names that you know. We, we ignored th their terrible advice and went to run a campaign the way that we wanted to run it. Delgado had an opportunity to tell people exactly who he was. He was from that area. He was grounded in, in, in the region. Uh, he's from upstate, Schenectady, New York, which is a little bit out of the district, but you don't say you're from Schenectady unless you're from Schenectady. It's the, kind of, it's the kind of place that, that lets people know that you didn't grow up with a silver spoon in your mouth and you probably had to work pretty hard to get wherever you are in life today. A lot of these candidates uh, are successful in their own rights, but they're from these states and they can make their own story as to you know why they understand the people from their respective states and would be a good representative for those states. Delgado ended up winning a competitive pri seven-way primary and then went on to beat the incumbent by five points. He got reelected by double digits in the following race in 2020. He did that because he outworked everyone. He is super smart. He's disciplined. And that built a lot of goodwill with a lot of people that didn't look like him. Part of the reason is that his positions, well, he voted very much as a progressive. He was able to talk about it in a very reasonable way as to why this is the way that he you know, thought about things and wanted to approach policy and was able to get a receptive audience from a lot of these voters. Again, most of them white, a lot of them independent, and uh, a whole bunch of them had voted for Donald Trump just a few short months before in the, the 2018 election. So there is an, an opportunity to build that goodwill and look like a very reasonable candidate while not conceding your principles as a, a liberal, uh, as a Democrat. Each state's going to be a little bit different. Each race is a little bit different. But if you can avoid being painted as a liberal or, or typical Democratic liberal, socialist, Marxist, and all those things, th those labels don't stick as well to black candidates uh, and, and as we've seen recently. And I think that each of these candidates has a chance to run the, their own race and be their own person and connect with voters in a, in a different way. So I'm looking forward to uh, seeing how they do. A full disclosure on this, we are working with some super PACs in support of Val Demings 
and Sherry Beasley in this cycle. So we will be a, hopefully a part of the story of their success in their individual states. You know, I'm glad you mentioned Delgado. We followed his 2018 campaign very closely. And in my opinion, the ads that Republicans ran against him in that election were the most racist of any they ran that cycle. And that is really saying something. In particular, they focused on his early career uh, as a rapper. We thought that made him look incredibly awesome, but obviously it was designed to uh, inspire fear in, you know, uh, racist white voters. Um, how is that something that you combated? Because he obviously did go on to some impressive wins in this district. With the Republicans and race, when it comes to these types of ads, I would say that it's like a moth to a flame. We knew exactly what they were going to go for. There were probably some other things that Antonio's bio w would have yielded a little bit more potency with the attack ads, but they couldn't help themselves to go ahead and run things that, you know, darkened his features, made him look like a tough gangster rapper. Don't forget, this man's a Rhodes Scholar. <laughs> this man <laughs> was an NCAA basketball player with the Ivy League school. He is is the best of, of what folks have to offer. And he's from upstate New York, and he wasn't afraid to say that. The, the thing that we wanted to do was to disarm all of that racism in, you know, a, a subtle yet head-on way. We wanted to show that Antonio was a smart dude and that people – liked him, people from that area. So most of the folks up there are white. So we're going to make sure that we go and campaign with white voters. The ad campaign that we ran in the primary, which also extended to the general election, was called Doors. And we wanted to bring the campaign experience of door knocking to the doorstep of everyone who was watching these ads. So we had simply Antonio walking up driveways and, and going through the various towns of upstate New York, talking to people about the stuff that mattered to them, healthcare, jobs, environment, women's health, all the things that were on the minds of voters. And having a very reasonable and sensible, smart guy do that was something that helped turn the tide. Now, when we looked at the outcome of that election and, and the types of voters that we were able to get, I mean, his numbers with white voters, particularly white women voters, were through the roof. They're the types of numbers that you don't normally see. And the reason is that we disarmed f voters from the normal way of thinking and were able to show Antonio as a human being who wanted to do something good for the community that he's from. The, the more people saw those other ads play against that, the less inclined they were to absorb that negative messaging because he looked like someone who didn't deserve this type of nastiness. He's just a nice guy. And it ended up having a negative effect on John Faso's election chances. So going back to the earlier comment about do no harm from the IEs, at the end of the day, those racist, nasty attack ads on Delgado did more harm than good for the Republican side. It put more people in our camp because they didn't think they were fair. And we, we were able to scoop them up with a positive message. Well, I love hearing that there was a price for Republicans to pay for their racist ads. Uh, this is a fantastic conversation. We have been talking with Terrence Green, a political media consultant and managing partner at 4C Partners. Terrence, where can people find you online? For those in the Twitterverse, I am 
at TWGreen27. You can follow me for political news as well as sports updates. I'm a big baseball and football fan, so happy to have you join, and I'll follow back. promise. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you both. That's all from us this week. Thanks to Terrence Green for joining us. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday, everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can reach us by email at thedownballot at dailycoast.com. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to The Down Ballot and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks to our producer, Kara Zelaya, and editor, Tim Einenkel. We'll be back next week with a new episode. We'll be right back.